Hello, and welcome to episode number three of the Counterforce podcast. I'm your host, Aug Stone, and we were just listening to Confused 22 from Tyson Mead's new solo record, Robbing the Nuclear Family. This is coming out on Record Store Day this Saturday, along with the Chainsaw Kittens self-titled album from 1996. It's coming out on vinyl for the first time ever. That album was originally released on Scratchy, which was James and Darcy from the Smashing Pumpkins label. Tyson was the singer of the Chainsaw Kittens, who were an excellent rock band from Oklahoma. I've been a fan since 1992. And before that, he sang for Defenestration, who had an EP, and then their Dolly Does Windows was released on Relativity in 1987. It's funny, just the other day I was saying how much I missed the Trouser Press Record Guide, which was basically the internet for us back in the 90s before most of us got on the internet. There was this great cross-referencing of bands, and you'd learn about all this cool stuff to go and check out. When I was looking up the kittens, I learned about defenestration and that their name means the act of throwing something out a window, coming from the French fenêtre for window. And then when I went to college years later, defenestration was one of those big words that people would use to try and look cool and impress you like you didn't know what it meant. And I was always like, dude, I've known that word for years. Don't you know the chainsaw kittens? And that would shut them up. Of course, it was a shame that most people didn't and don't know the kittens. It seemed like they were going to break big when Pop Eras came out and the Smashing Pumpkins and Flaming Lips, as well as being friends of theirs, were also big fans. But it was not to be. And Tyson has a great blog post about this, along with other rad rock and roll things at shakingshanghai.com. Because after the kittens broke up, he went to China to teach English and ended up running a boarding school there. But he couldn't keep away from music for long. In 2013, he returned with the Tomorrow in Progress record. Some great pop songs on there. And the thing with Tyson is, like on this new record, all the songs have this really cool, unexpected production. Uh, Jimmy Chamberlain plays drums on that record. He also co-wrote a few songs. And Derek Brown from The Flaming Lips is on it. And Pumpkins bassist Nicole Fiorentino duets with Tyson on the closing Buddy Dash, which is a great rock song. And now Tyson's back with another solo record. So let's get talking about that. But before we do, I just want to mention that a couple days after this interview was done, Tyson announced that he was running for Oklahoma's 5th District U.S. Congress with education as his top priority. The situation in Oklahoma is just dire, so let's give him our support. You can learn more about that by going to the Facebook page, Tyson Todd Mead for U.S. Congress, and I'll post the link in the show notes. And without further ado... So should we dive right in? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do it. All right. Tell me about when you fell in love with music as a kid. Oh, gosh. I think it must have been, well, I know it had to be, it was the Beatles. And, you know, I think, well, I know I was around two years old when they were on Ed Sullivan. And I remember it. I think I remember it, but I don't now. It's been so long ago that I've seen the footage so many times that I don't know if I truly remember it or my family tells me I remember it. And I was dancing around and everybody was dancing around when it was happening, you know. And that's when I fell in love with music was definitely the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And uh, I always wanted for uh, Christmas and birthdays, I always wanted Beatle records from the time I could remember until, you know, until I started listening to like, and when I was in grade school, I started listening to stuff like Rod Stewart and Janis Joplin. And then from there it went to, you know, when I went to junior high, uh, I started listening to uh, Bowie and New York Dolls and Iggy and the Stooges and, and that sort of thing, you know. And I, I just, like, other kids were playing sports, 
and I was taking drum when I was nine years old. I started taking drum lessons, and when all my friends were playing sports, I was in my room practicing my drums, my rudiments. You know, uh, one and a two and a three and a four and a. <laughs> <laughs> so that's I, I've just always music has been a bit of a harsh mistress at times, but but it's always been my passion my whole life. I didn't know you, you were a drummer originally. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually played drums through high school, and then I was in a couple of bands right out of high school, some like new wave sort of bands, because uh, I had, by 1980, I had fallen in love with, you know, stuff like the Sex Pistols and, and uh, The Damned and Elvis Costello and that sort of thing. And so it seemed like the bands that were had anything going on were like these sort of punk new wave bands. So as a drummer, and then I realized, I, I started playing guitar and I realized as a drummer, I didn't have much control, but that the whole band was basically on my shoulders at like even more so than a singer because a singer you know you can blow a line or whatever but if you're a drummer you blow the beat and people are like what's wrong with a drummer you know <laughs> so it was way it was way more pressure than I ever even imagined it would be and I think that I had played drums for so long that it was just it was so nerve-wracking to play. It was just, it it was such a part of me that I felt like I had to be the best. And, and, and I became that way as a singer, but I approached singing the whole time as like, well, I can be Patti Smith if I, you know, if I sing out a key, that just adds to it, even though I tried not to sing out a key, you know. Okay. Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, my, the whole psychology of it kind of, uh, overrode me at one point, I think. And then I just loved uh, writing music, and and I think I'm just fairly more creative than than uh, technical, you know. And so singing and writing songs really was much better than playing the drums, you know, the backbeat of a band or whatever. So when did you realize you could sing? Ah, uh, you know, that's really funny, because in eighth grade, I, you know, I had my best friend, I was really into the New York Dolls and Aerosmith and Kiss, I mean, New York Dolls and Aerosmith and Iggy Pop, and he was really into Kiss, and we were going to start this band, and I think I was probably, like, I was the only one who really played an instrument, so I was probably initially going to play drums, but... But he and I and another friend had like this singing contest and I sang Killer Queen for him and he was like, God damn it, you can actually sing. And so that's when I realized I could sing. But I, for years I didn't really, I was so, sh I was painfully shy. I mean, I was, I, I was shy unless you knew me, and then I was, you know, kind of a chatterbox. But if I didn't know you, I was so shy. And actually, when I'd go back to um, class reunions at my high school with the kids that I'd, you know, went from junior high through high school with, uh, a few of them were like, yeah, we heard that 
you were that you sang in a band and that you know you had done well and we're like no that can't be the same guy because he was so quiet and so it kind of yeah I, I don't know what happened something you know I, I guess I just wrestled my demons by you know going out and getting in front of an audience and you know I, I guess also around and, and all of this you know it's it's all sort of multi layered because you know you can't there's not really a black and white but like I guess when I was in high school I started hanging around I was I was also kind of the school freak because I just was not a sports guy and it was in a very sporty sort of high school and so I really stuck out until I was um like you know I guess a junior or senior in high school and then I started my best friend was friends with he was a skater a skateboarder and so he started hanging out he would he had this group of skaters that I hung out with as well and they didn't care anything about sports all they cared about was skateboarding and they thought the whole like you know athletic part of high school was ridiculous and I became part of that crowd and they actually helped me become more sort of sure of myself or whatever and and then uh one of the guys that was a skater, Todd Walker, he's from Bartlesville too. He and I started Defenestration together, basically in Bartlesville. What were the skaters listening to? The skaters were listening to like, you know, Buzzcocks and 999 and The Clash and, uh, you know, all the kind of new wave punk stuff. And, and by that time, I, you know, kind of discovered Joy Division and, psychedelic furs and sort of the post-punk stuff as well so so we all you know brought our own sort of taste to the party and and you know we all just loved music the skaters were big music fans too and and you know of course my classmates who weren't skaters were listening to like sticks and uh aria speedwagon and stuff like and kansas and stuff like that you know yeah <laughs> but I, I think the one, the common bond between everyone was like Cheap Trick. That was the one band that I really loved that was like popular at the time. And, you know, like even the people that like REO Speedwagon, like Cheap Trick, and, and they are were kind of the glue that I could at least, I, I wasn't palling around with the like real sort of uptight kids but i was you know i'd become friendly with them because i had my own group and of people that i was uh, that i was hanging around and i wasn't really intimidated by these uh you know sporty types anymore you know what's your favorite cheap trick song oh gosh uh, you know i think some of those songs on the first record i really love um their cover of the Terry Reed song, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace, is, uh, I like it a whole lot. Um, I, you know, I like stuff from Heaven Tonight, like uh, On Top of the World and Stiff Competition. Then the album that George Martin produced, uh, All Shook Up, I like uh, Can't Stop It But I'm Gonna Try and uh, stop this game or what I can't stop the music or stop this game or whatever that the first song on that album is I, I think there's like little parts of their like I lift from you know Bowie and Cheap Trick and Janis Joplin and Ev and Zeppelin and everyone I listen to the Stones 
And, you know, for sure, Robin Sander had a combination of Paul McCartney and John Lennon going on. So I think that's why I like his voice so much in, in Cheap Trick. Cool. So let's talk about the new album. Okay, cool, cool. What I really love about it is it's these really great pop songs, but the production on it is really, like kind of out there and takes you into this strange pop world. It's, it's really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think with that, you know, I mean, that's definitely me channeling Bowie and Eno. And, you know, I, when I started this new record, I actually, and again, it's not really black and white, I was in China working on Tomorrow in Progress, but usually what would happen when I finish a record, like when I finish Tomorrow in Progress, my last record, I would take a break. But for some reason, I absolutely couldn't. And I had all these songs like just hitting me, and it was really too late to put them on Tomorrow in Progress because we had got to a point where we'd put drums and we'd mixed it and, and it was ready to be released. And I had another half of a record ready to go into like production or whatever, because what I do is I, I, the other thing that's really great about modern technology is I can sit on my, you know, I can hook a mic up in my living room and play all my weird synthesizers and my weird instruments, whatever I have, and put it into my studio and my computer. And I can take as much time as I want, whereas with the kittens or back, you know, before we had this, like, technology we have now, you were, you were basically, you were in a studio and you had, you had to write the songs, go in, record them. You didn't have, or we didn't have like the luxury of someone like the Beach Boys or the Beatles who can, you know, like the Beach Boys could spend six weeks on the vocals on Wouldn't It Be Nice, you know. I, and the kittens, we couldn't do this. But with this new sort of platform, with this new way of recording, I can... I can spend time and experiment and, and, and also just the, um, there's that technical aspect, but there's also the aspect of me being in China and that completely just blowing apart my old workbook and me being able to assemble a new workbook of how I write and how I record because the just all the onslaught of like stimuli in Shanghai was I think another reason that I couldn't stop writing songs because every day I'd walk out and there'd be another song just ready for me to you know to come into my being and so of course Shanghai informed all of what I was doing too just the whole you know, chickens and stuff hanging dead in windows, you know, you're walking by and all of that has an effect on you, you know. <laughs> I always got the sense that you always had a bit of a fascination with the East, like from Flipped Out in Singapore and Loneliest China Place. Is that true? Or? I, I guess I did. You know, it, it was like every time I would, because it seems so mythological to me and I didn't 
ever really imagine. You know, I thought, okay, eventually the kittens will go to Japan and we'll play there, and and that that'll be our Eastern experience, which actually never happened. That's the one place I've never made it to, even though I uh, was supposed to go there. I missed a flight and it got all messed up and I didn't go. But yeah, I, I you know, I, I, the other thing is I stopped drinking like 12, 13, 14 years ago. And, and the wild kind of parties I had became, I, I, I just always have to have adventure and I couldn't have adventures drinking so I had these sort of wild literary sort of like Heathcliff leaves Wuthering Heights and he goes to these foreign lands and that's basically exactly what I did. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) So who plays on the new record? Uh, Okay well there's some a couple of guys from PK-14, this punk band in Beijing that are like the oldest punk band. They've been around since, you know, in in China. This is like ancient. They've been around since the early 90s, I guess. You know, right when China opened up, I guess they formed. And and they're this sort of uh, pseudo-politico punk band. And they're called PK-14. So they were on it. And then Half a J... My the violin the violinist that I met when I was uh, running the boarding school in Shanghai, he's he's my violinist and and I can't imagine him not being on all my records and and I actually started making records to showcase him and I want him to be famous and he wants to be famous as a violinist and he's 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 brilliant and the sweetest guy I've ever met and so he's sort of my partner of sorts my musical partner and so he he's on it on a lot of the songs and then Rob Martin who plays drums in this um, band Sugar Free All Stars who are a kids band and they won a Grammy a few years ago for a kids song he plays some drums and then Matt Duckworth who's in the Flaming Lips played drums on some songs and then my friend David Immergluck who's in the Counting Crows, he's like, he was, he played with John Hyatt for years and is in the Counting Crows. And, and he's like kind of my musical encyclopedia. Uh, he's a, uh, utility musician. He plays guitar, but he plays everything. And he played bass mainly on, on the new album. I'd sent him Confused 22 because he loved the last record. And I thought, Oh, I'll just send him a song and see if he wants to, you know, play on it. And so I sent him Confused 22 from the new record. Uh, I had, you know, recorded it on my computer, and then I had added drums at my friend Trent Bell at his studio, who, uh, you know, is in The Kittens. I sent David Emmergluck, Emmy, uh, Confused 22, and I said, okay, so this is imagine this song and it's basically if john lennon went into a time machine and wound up at the led zeppelin three sessions but next in the next room ricky lee jones and black francis from the pixies were having a fist fight that's what i want this song to sound like and he's like got it (laughs) and so he sent it back and he he recorded it at uh boulevard recorders with clay blair which uh is a studio in LA where 
it used to be producers workshop and Pink Floyd the, the American part of the wall there and uh, and Fleetwood Mac mixed rumors there and so it's this really great room and so that they did that uh, to confuse 22 and sent it back to me I was like oh my god I love it and then he was like yeah, we want to mix the record and I want to, I want to, you don't have bass. And so I want to play bass and whatever, you know, whatever else you want to add, like, you know, electric sitar or whatever. And I was like, all right. So they made me this, you know, offer I couldn't refuse for like, not really much money at all. And I flew out to LA and, and finished it. And yeah, he, he, it was just a really, ex- the whole thing was just such an exciting process. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> one thing that really struck me is like, you never know like what instrument's going to come in when or like where the song's going to go at any given moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and crazy, the crazy thing is the first song that I wrote before I even started working on Tomorrow in Progress or the first song that I put together was Motorcycle Boy number three uh, as like the soundscape. And I didn't put it on Tomorrow in Progress because it just didn't work on, and I didn't really, I had it basically all put together, like the sections and everything, but I had to sit with it for a while. And it's on, it's on this record because it just fits, it just fits on robbing much better than it would have on tomorrow and it's like that kind of song that for me it's like this adventure you know where you're on the back of a motorcycle in thailand and just driving around going kind of nuts so what i've always loved about your titles is that they're always they're all so evocative like pop Harris dies angel self-destruct flipped out in singapore any artists that you listen to that you feel do the same to you uh, you know, definitely Bowie, uh, because like the first, the, uh, Diamond Dogs came out when, you know, that was the album that was out when I started, when I got into it. And that was like the new album at the time. And, you know, you have the ever, ever circling can of the skeletal people or what. And I think those sorts of, and like, of course, you know, Iggy with your pretty face is going to hell and. Those and and you know dolls with uh, some of their titles, you know, like I like personality crisis, such a great title, and Jet Boy, you know, Private World, you know, and so I, you know, I think that those uh, and of course the master of titles is Brian Eno from Here Come the Warm Jets. Like any title off of that is, you know, like so that was a real, you know, that definitely was a real sort of inspiration too, is all of his crazy sort of double entendres and play plays on words and stuff, you know. So, yeah. Another thing I really love is that you always <laughs> seem to have a song with a, a female name in the title. Yeah. I mean, the first kitten song I ever heard was when I caught the Connie I've Found the Door video yeah. on MTV in 1992, but I didn't realize until recently that Connie is your sister. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's my sister and older sister and, you know, always sort of kind of more motherly than sister 
Lee a lot of times. And, you know, and, and with that song, she was like, you know, you go along, don't try to go through a wall, just go along a wall until you find a door. And that, because I, it was before the kittens, like I was in between bands and I didn't know what to do. And this kitten, the kitten's opportunity of sorts presented itself. And I thought, oh yeah, that's, you know, like kind of, it's almost like taking, not taking the easy way, but trying to figure out a way that's going to be, that's going to make sense, I guess, you know? Mm. And so that, yeah. So, and, and with the female names, you know, I, I actually had someone the other day tell me, oh, you know, my friend and I went to see you. She had never seen you and, she, and you sing about like, all these sorts of girl boy situations. And, you know, obviously I sing about boy boy situations too, but I was like, yeah, because I'm a writer. I'm not like, not everything. I mean, I'm sometimes I'm not, I'm observing someone else's situation. It doesn't always have to be my own situation. And sometimes I'm placing myself, within someone else's world or whatever you know and 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 it's i think that's what i i don't know of any writers who don't do that you know mm -hmm. so yeah. um the album title robbing the nuclear family when did that come to you oh my gosh well that um that's this whole part of the album that i wrote after like i had some of the songs were uh, songs that I'd written right after Tomorrow in Progress or right as I was finishing Tomorrow in Progress. And then there are uh, like four or five songs that I wrote and I had a very surly muse that uh, was definitely spearheaded. I Things sort of happened that are a little hard to explain and you know, I, I'd, I had, Tomorrow in Progress, I would say, is more of an observation. It's me uh, watching my kids in China my, at my, you know, at my boarding school, me just watching them and sort of commenting. But it's, uh, you know, that was sort of, I realized that's sort of the theme of me as an observer. And robbing the nuclear family is me as a participant because I, the muse, I participated in something that became heartbreak and how the title robbing the nuclear family came about. The muse and I were talking and I was telling him, you know, we were kind of talking about how, you know, how things sort of transpire in relationships with both of us. And, and I told him, yeah, there's a lot of my relationships have been people who have broken up with a girlfriend and it just, something just happens and there I am and there the person is. And, and he, and he was like, that's not robbing the cradle. That's robbing the nuclear family. And I <laughs> thought, Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. And I, I told him right there, that's probably going to be my album title, you know, that for this album that I was working on. And then, Within like a week or so, I, I sat down and just wrote He's the Candy as sort of the companion piece to the, uh, you know, as the 
you know, and and it's really, you know, I mean, it's fairly non-fictional, you know, but it's a real, like now, you know, with all the family values stuff sort of like thrown out the window with our current administration and people trying to say, oh yeah, you know, it's still a thing. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> he's, he's married to a hooker, you know. So I, I, I think the time is right, you know, and, and, and also robbing the nuclear family. Um, there's a deeper meaning of really in a true sense, uh, in the truest sense, the Beatles were the ones who originally robbed the nuclear family because it was yes, mom, yes, dad. And then the Beatles come along and it seems like they're pretty like, you know, pretty lovable. And then all of a sudden, two years after they are, you know, singing, I want to hold your hand on Ed Sullivan, they're singing Tomorrow Never Knows. And, you know, and these like just complete trippy drug songs, you know, and, and this whole generation is, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying they necessarily spearheaded it, even though I think, hey, I, I don't think, there are many people who would say they didn't spearhead it. And so they truly were the ones who robbed the nuclear family and and changed the whole landscape of the Western world, I think, you know, mm. or helped change it at least. Yeah. So what what else can you tell me about He's the Candy? I mean it's very it's very much a single. It's very new wave and catchy. Yeah. I didn't mean to, but it's really like a Ramon song. I mean it's like I was also when I was in China, um, I was teaching, take my guitar to class, and I would teach the kids Ramon songs. Was when I I, I did uh, I taught them uh, Sheena is a punk rocker, and it's so it's sort of that like that sort of feel of like even mom and dad could sing along, but then when you're like the words are just so a little twisted, I guess, and and it, it's it's weird because I can't really say where it came from it just sort of came like I was playing this sort of Ramones riff and and I just started singing along and I basically had the words within probably 10 minutes or something you know cool and so yeah yeah so uh yeah I'm really I am really proud of it I I it was a lot of things that had been bottled up inside and I know it so uh I I think it's going to be one of my banner songs of you know like my anthemic sort of pop songs and i uh i i am very proud of it we're talking about confused 22 earlier that's another really catchy one yeah were you thinking of yourself at 22 were you looking at the youth of today or i i was looking at that's another one about my surly muse he was 22 at the time and and he just would drive me so crazy because I, 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 I gotta say right now I love the millennials. I, I think they're kicking ass. But certain people, even though they'd be in the millennial like stratus, and and some of it, I, I just got too emotionally attached to something. I, you know, I, I, I was he was gonna be playing in my band with me and he would he would just show up like two hours late sometimes and I, I was like oh my gosh can't you can't do that <laughs> and 
a really sweet guy and it's all you know it's kind of all water on the bridge and I'm, I'm really happy actually that all the heartache happened because I got that song I got um, you know he's the candy obviously was you know from his suggestion I got tiniest of guys and uh, I got Daphne come out you know for sure another girl's name there Another, another girl's name, and that is sort of me. At the same time, Johannes, my manager, he was going through a divorce, and there were like rough times happening, and so that's sort of a song for him. And then I was also watching a movie on, you know, I think on Netflix about a teacher having an affair with a student and that figured into it. And like, and I was also felt like I was, my heart had been trod upon uh, by the surly muse and all of it, you know, a lot of my songs are summations of a few different situations and 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 Daphne come out was a summation of my situation Johannes's situation this television the movie I was watching that uh sort of brought it all to a to the forefront of what you know of what um I was you know feeling or whatever I always find that interesting when uh different things inspire a song there too like it's not just one pure thing but they come together and it creates yeah what it's supposed to be and, and, and it creates yeah yeah it does and you know i uh, actually have well i have a like i wrote the words on a paper sack from you know grocery sack and so they're on this huge like in uh, sharpie marker so it's sort of fun to look at them now because what what happens when I write a song like Confused 22 and I think also with like a song like Tiniest of Guys I write way more verses and stuff than I have room to sing and then as I'm singing it I can kind of pick and choose and cut and paste and all that and you know there's all these like extra lines in the actual original that I have written down you know when I was writing it. So, so it's interesting to look at that after the fact and go, oh, wow, you know, that's, I, yeah, some of these, you know, I try to take the meat of what I'm trying to say and leave, uh, unless I'm, you know, unless it's a description or something, I, I, I just try to fit what I really want to say in and then leave the other stuff out. Mm. The opening song, P.S. Yeah. Nuclear Forest Dance Boogie. I, that's lovely. Uh -huh. where, where did the title come from? <laughs> that, you know, and that was one of those songs that I was, I wrote. And the crazy thing, it was, I, I had the title and everything before I even had the title of the album. So it wasn't like I was riffing on the title of the record. Again, it was one of those songs that I wrote right after I had finished Tomorrow in Progress, and I was back in China uh, in this little uh, apartment. It had been a little warehouse or a storeroom, and they'd made it into an apartment. And then next to me 
was this sort of migrant family, and there were probably five or six people that lived in a room the size of most people's living room. And they lived like right next door to me. And I was like recording on my computer and stuff at while, you know, I was recording the vocals and guitar and synthesizers and sort of things in my apartment. And some of it was, some of the came from just how we, you know, in the West, I mean, I guess the thought was in the West, we have, you know, this certain way that we've evolved. And in the East, they have a certain way that they've evolved. And it's very similar because, I mean, it's similar in that we're human, but it's very, it's distinctly different in so many ways, but similar. And there was also a little boy uh, that they called Bao Bao, which is baby for uh, in Chinese. And, and he was just like the he was just like a bull in a china shop and he'd just run into my apartment my door would be open and he'd just run in and i i might be playing something on my stereo like you know who knows like boston or something and he'd just start dancing and then it dance for a little bit and he'd just run out and that was kind of the inspiration i don't know how but that was kind of the inspiration for the song because he was just so like full of energy and I'd look out and sometimes he'd be crying because he'd be in trouble for doing it because he was really this rough little boy and and I would go I had like a little table outside of my apartment and I'd go sit on that and he'd come over and I'd um, usually have you know I had little toys or stuff that I'd find at shops and and I'd have maybe a little toy that I'd give him and I'd say, okay, and he'd be okay. And his, he'd still have kind of tears running down his face. But he was just a sweet kid. And then once I, there was a, a little shop, a little like, what are you, a little sort of bodega, Chinese bodega, if, if we can call it such, where I could buy water and soda and, and different things, candy, whatever, in the, uh, in the little neighborhood. And... There was another little boy that was the shop's, you know, son, shop owner's son, and they were about the same age. And so I'd go there sometimes and, you know, buy like an, a tea, an iced tea or something. And Bao Bao was there once and he saw me and he just runs and grabs my hand and he just runs with me or leads me, runs me through the this apartment complex. It, it's like you know, several different buildings and, and the building where I was, it had, was apartments on top and had been warehouses in the bottom. And I was living in like one of the little warehouse rooms. Uh, but he, like he, you know, we kind of played this miniature game of crack the whip, just the two of us. And I was just running and with him and he, he ran me to where his grandmother was playing uh, mahjong and and then he and then his grandfather was, you know, playing checkers with some some guy and he ran me by there and then and then he just like he and I just kind of start spinning in the uh, parking lot and I, I was like, oh well I guess this is evolution and that was part of what brought the song <laughs> are you singing we must have more love yeah yeah uh 
uh, uh, look how far we've come with our paranoia and guns. Sometimes there is love. We must have more love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a really that good is, bit of the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was really, you know, like the other thing, there's a lo another summation of I'd come back to America and I didn't know anything about China or the people or anything before I, I moved there. And I would have basically my people saying to me, well, aren't we going to go to war with them? And I'd be like, no, no, they're, they're, they're communists, but they're wonder, they're beautiful people. They're wonderful people. No, we, 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 they don't want to, they don't want to invade America. They don't want to change America. They love America, you know, and, and, and they get, very the people there I, I not some i don't know the government but the people there get very you know hurt by the american uh attitudes sometimes because they want it they love america and they you know and we have like the best publicity they see you know like movies like spider-man or whatever and they're like oh we want to live in america you know and so it became a bit of a, when I was in China, it became a bit of a like crusade for me, like a very small crusade to, and uh, Tomorrow in Progress was more, you know, along that line of like, I love, you know, I love being here. I, and they always made me feel so welcome and they were, they were the best hosts. And, and, you know, I have, I became uh like family to uh my best friend there he he got married and his wife he, he's chinese and his wife's chinese and, and anytime i go i stay with him and his his extended family his wife's family and all of his uncles they none of them speak he's the only one who speaks english but they all i had this experience with his father-in-law who was an ex-policeman kind of this tough guy and I don't know, I know like basic phrases and his father-in-law always like did anything to try to make me feel comfortable, just like any, like, and, and I was leaving at one point and I said, well, I need, which is, I love you to his father-in-law and his father-in-law said something back to me and I said, what do you say? And and my friend and his cousin, who actually spoke some English too, she said, he said he loves you too. He doesn't even say that to his wife, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, you know, it was one of these things where, you know, I, I, I think there's this thing about being from another culture, like that you can almost like, and I've had one of my Chinese friends say that, that he can be, more, he he does, he can be different than what he is to his friends because I'm foreign, so he can be a different sort of person. Which and I think that's something like a culture, like yeah, there's and I also feel like I'm sort of I realize that I'm sort of a mirror because I respond to people how they treat me, and my Chinese brethren were always very warm and protective and you know i and maybe i was in a situation a situation that that happened and it might have to do with circumstances but at the same time it was the situation i was in i guess you know <laughs>
Cool. So the new record's coming out on Record Store Day. On April 21st, yes. Record Store Day. And so is the self-titled Chainsaw Kittens record is coming out on vinyl for the first time. Yes, yes, which is really exciting too. So how did that come about? Well, Jarrett from Jet Plastic, who's putting out my record, we were talking about it and then about putting out the Kittens record. And then he's like, yeah, let's do it. And I, I told him, yeah, we own the rights to it. Let's Let's just do it. Then, not too long after that, he's like, yeah, the, the official Record Store Day people, they want to make it an official Record Store Day release, and that means, you know, it's going to be a bigger deal than if we just put it out. And so, it just all sort of snowballed uh, once, because we, the kittens, we own the rights to it, and we've wanted to put it out on vinyl and some friends of mine put out Pop Eris like a year ago, which was, well, it came out, it was a year ago, last Record Store Day, but it was sort of under the radar. I was excited to have that out because it had never come out on vinyl. But the the Scratchy record, the fourth fourth album, Trent, you know, my buddy Trent and the Chainsaw Kittens, that was, sort, that was really his baby. That was one that we recorded ourselves and it was it was like his he had just started really engineering albums full time and so it really was his baby even though you know we all were very much involved in and uh the other thing I I I guess I should say is Earlier, I was talking about how when we would record, we never had time to really mess around in the studio. And with the fourth album, the self-titled, we were recording it ourselves, so we had more time to really uh, experiment, even though we were still in a studio situation. It was it was not like he or his assistant engineer, Carl Amburn, was running the machine. So it wasn't like I was there by myself recording like I do now with my own stuff. So so there was still time constraints that you know you had to take and I I always I I feel like now I like to have my own space when I'm recording and I feel like it it's just more better for me if I can you know really just hone things, and then, you know, if I have to go to the studio to put them down, that's great, but I can at least get the initial ideas on my own computer, you know. Now, this originally came out on Scratchy, which was yeah, James uh, and Darcy from the Smashing Pumpkins label? Yeah, yeah, it's their la- it was their label, and, you know, it was one of those things where we were promised the world, and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and then little did we know that things were going terribly wrong within the pumpkins camp within that time. And I think everybody was simultaneously losing their minds during that time. (laughs) Works out well sometimes, like Exile and Main Street, but doesn't work out so well other times, you know. (laughs) Well, what else can you tell me about about that time with the kittens? Oh, wow. You know... um, I don't really remember that much. I know that we, you know, like a lot of people, like 
uh, our managers, our man, like we got new management. We lost our booking, a really, really great booking agent. We got a booking agent that didn't really care about us. So like things, all the things that you hear happening to bands like New York Dolls breaking up in a trailer park in Florida. That's basically what was going on with us uh, metaphorically. You know, we, it just, I also, with the help of Trent Bell, with a lot of help from Trent Bell, I realized I didn't want to be a lifer just being the guy who's like, oh, you know, it almost happened and, you know, I'm just going to keep playing and, and just, I don't know. I just, I went back to school and I finished school and then I went to China and I got to have these adventures that I wouldn't have had if everything was firing on all cylinders when, you know, they, because I think the, I know the quality of the music speaks for itself and sometimes things are just not, sometimes it's just not meant to be. And I, I actually embrace that part of it because I am happy that I got to live this other life that didn't include, you know, way more cocaine than I should have been snorting. Two questions. Okay. <laughs> Dorothy's Last Fling. Another girl's title. Another girl. And, you know, I got a little obsessed with Wizard of Oz, I think, while we were making the album. There were these things that kept, like, pe we, like people like, oh, yeah, there's this scene where you can see that someone actually dies and they hang from a ladder or something on the set. And we kept looking, and then it, it's like a, you know, urban myth or whatever in it. It didn't really happen, but I got really, uh, and maybe I started realizing the, maybe there's a parallel there between Judy Garland's situation as, you know, always being, you know, sort of used and used and used as, as you know, as, and, and a child star that, you know, that they basically gave speed to, to keep working. So... I thought, I guess I thought of her life and like how, you know, you see her as Dorothy in Wizard of Oz and she's so innocent and then you see her and we actually, she might be one of the first of the people that, even though she was already grown when I was born, through her movies and through historical, you know, documents of movies, you get to see her go from Dorothy to Judy Garland struggling with mental illness and such, you know. And I think, I, and I don't know if I put all of that, considered all of that when I was writing Dorothy's Last Fling, but, you know, it, it just seemed like she was Elvis before there was Elvis, you know. <laughs> and what about Speedway, Oklahoma? Yeah, you know, Speedway, Oklahoma, we had a lot of time to just sit and do nothing. And I think back then I was smoking a lot of pot. And so it was like I would wake up at noon and maybe I'd go to the studio if I was doing something that day. Or maybe I wouldn't 
if I wasn't doing something that day. And I, I just had so much time to just sort of kill. And Oklahoma, being in Oklahoma is like a different experience than probably being in, in New York or Chicago or L.A. because you're every, it's just so slow and everything just sort of happens over and over. Like you go to this person's house and you drink and listen to Led Zeppelin records or whatever, but it just is sort of Groundhog Day, you know, over and over. And that was, you know, I feel like, I don't know what, I, I think I just sat down on the, uh, with my guitar and just started writing it and it sort of came out and it was really a, just a reflection of that time of being, you know, we were in this really fast paced sort of life of going on tour and doing these shows and, you know, ha like being in New York or LA or, or flying over to the UK to do shows. But then we'd be back in Oklahoma and it would just be like being, you know, in Hooterville or something, you know, just very, uh, a very Green Acres sort of situation. I realized, I think I realized at some point, I don't know that people in New York wouldn't and wouldn't have that sort of insight that I would have being in Oklahoma in a really slow sort of day-to-day, -day, get up, have, you know, as, that's before I even drank coffee, I think. I'd get up and go get a Coke, Coca-Cola, and have my Coca-Cola and probably be somewhat hungover and then start writing songs or whatever. And, and it was a really... You know, it's a great time, too, because we had, you know, we, we all had a little, uh, not much, but a little bit of money in the bank, and we didn't have to worry because we had been, you know, given this money to make a record, and part of the money was to live on. And so we were, so I was, people that were, like, working, and that kind of thing, like, working at a job, I was like, oh, man, that would suck. Anything else to say about that record? No, no, you know, I, I, the only thing that I, I guess I will add is that I have listened to it, you know, uh, recently and, and I'm, you know, still really proud of it. I'm, I'm really proud of all the records, you know, I, I, I've read something that Patti Smith said about trying to keep your name clean and doing exactly what you want to do and don't give in and that's what you do when you're an artist and and i feel like i've tried to do that and i i, I feel like i have done that and with that being said i feel like history has been very kind to me and to the kittens you know so these are coming out on vinyl are you a vinyl guy oh yeah yeah i am uh uh, these are just, uh, that's this part of it. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, here's from Iggy, and then Alex Chilton. Awesome. And then Mick Rock signed this. Yeah. Wow. He was next door at Wayne Coyne's house, Mick Rock was, and I gave him a stack of records to sign, and he was going through them, and his, of course his stuff like Queen and then, you know, Coney Island baby by the reed and but then there were also albums like stars attention shoppers he did the he did the photo for that 
for stars. And he's like, fuck me. Did I, I, I shot stars. I'm like, well, your name's right here, Mick. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was pretty great to get to meet Mick Rock, who, you know, it's like, well, you can't sign the Iggy record because Iggy already signed it, but you can sign the Queen record. So are you going to be touring when the new album comes out? I hope to. You know, I'm. It, it's all that stuff of like now I don't have the machine like I did at one point. And I, I think you can, everything can be done, but it's just a little difficult. I want to, I really, I would really like to have some sort of foothold in the UK. That's where I'd really like to put my efforts and we're trying to figure out how to make that happen, you know. Nice. When was the first time you went to the UK? The first time I went was uh, went in 1982, right out of high school, just because Echo and the Bunnymen and all that stuff was happening there. And so I went to uh, check it out. And I was there in London for a couple of weeks and just loved it. And, you know, now I look back and I'm like, you know, I should have just did whatever I could to just day and start a band there you know because then like there was so much going on there that was you know it was just such a great time you know but but at the same time I was like 18 or 19 and I you know I had this group of friends that I just made in Oklahoma that were all the skater friends I and I couldn't imagine just leaving them all behind and you know and back then it's so different than it is now where you can Skype and that sort of thing. And when you left and went somewhere, you were there full on, you know? When was the first time you played in the UK? The first time we played in the UK was on, on flip, on flipped out in Singapore. Mammoth sent us over and we did a, a, like a promotional sort of tour or like, whatever, showcase gigs, because, you know, Butch Vig had just produced that record. So we did these showcase gigs, and all these writers, like from Melody Maker and such, came out. And Simon Price wrote for Melody Maker. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I saw him at, like, a Manic Street Preachers show or something when we were there. We Somehow, I think he interviewed us when we were there. I don't know how this happened because it was all before, you know, email, cell phones, all that stuff. But we must have met up and he's like, oh, you know, I can get you into. And I was like, a, I love that first Manic Street Preachers record and their EPs and stuff. And he's like, I can get you into Manic Street Preachers. They're, they're brilliant or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'd love to see him. And so I met up with him. You know, at the Manic Street Preachers, I think. And yeah, he was so, yeah, he was, he was really super nice. And it was, you know, and we did really well. You know, people really loved us. And then we went back for Pop Eris the next year. And then on the Scratchy record, we were, I had become friends with the Counting Crows and they were going to take us on a tour of Europe because Adam really loved the Scratchy record. And um, then the record company was like, well, they decided not, they just, a week before we were going to go, they were like, yeah, we're not putting your record out in Europe, so tours off. And it was just like, wow, really? You know, because we had, it, it was so crazy, this sort of thing. Just, I mean, I just think about it now and go, wow, you know, at 
right now, if that happened, something like that happened, you know, I have Johannes and he'd be like, oh yeah, you're still going. And, but then also now as a solo artist, if something like that happened, I could, it would be more logistically easy to go somewhere. But when you have a, a band that's like $1,000 each, at least for plane tickets and, you know, there you've got $4,000 before you've even played a note, really, you know. Yeah. So, it actually, in the end, it's what it should be, and, and it's what, and I'm happy that what happened, happened, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm where I'm at, and I'm actually healthy, and I don't drink, and and I love just being able to wake up and do my art, it's great. I mean, not a lot of money in the bank, but, you know, I, I'm, I kind of, I, I think I'm kind of living like Judy Garland, where she was like, I'm kind of metaphorically going from hotel to hotel until they kick me out, you know? Well, this was great. Well, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, thanks very much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, Tyson. I've been a big fan for years, so it was really cool to finally get to chat with him. Back in 1992, my best friend and I would stay up till 2 a.m. every Sunday to watch all of 120 Minutes on MTV. 1992 was a really great year for music. I discovered lots of cool stuff then. And one night, the very last video on was the premiere of the kittens, Connie, I've Found the Door. And although I was super tired, the song was just so exciting, so powerful and melodic. I once described it as like a kiss that completely kicks your ass. I was just bouncing off the walls like the tune jolted me awake. And it's super cool that Tyson mentioned the Manic Street Preacher's first album, Generation Terrorists, as the first things I ever bought at the cool record store near my hometown, Secret Sounds in Bridgeport, Connecticut, was the kittens flipped out in Singapore, Generation Terrorists, and Daisy Chainsaw's first EP, the one with Love Your Money, just such an excellent song, another chainsaw there. Uh, definitely check out the kittens and Tyson's solo work as well. A reminder that his new one is coming out this Saturday on Record Store Day, along with the Kitten's self-titled album from 1996 on vinyl for the first time. And be sure to check out Tyson's other solo work. There's two earlier solo records, Motorcycle Childhood and Kitchens and Bathrooms, and they have really good songs on them. Motorcycle Childhood has a song called Off With You, just Tyson and a piano, and it's incredibly beautiful. One of my favorites. I've always wanted to cover it. And be sure to check out the podcast website, where I'll have lots of show notes and sign up for the mailing list. I send out seven songs a week that I'm really into. And also like the Counterforce Facebook page, where I post a song of the day. And I'm going to leave you now with the song that started my whole love of the kittens, Connie, I've Found the Door, from Flipped Out in Singapore. El 